As many of you know, a few weeks ago, uh, I went to Taiwan with my family. And while in Taipei one evening, we were on our way to the train station. While we were waiting for a long stoplight to change to green so that we can get to the station, it began to pour rain. And we had not brought our umbrellas out with us that evening, and so we were getting mighty wet. At that time, a Taiwanese man began to approach our family. I looked at this man, looked at the way he was dressed, made a quick assessment of, it, of who he was, and my defensive and protective instincts began to bubble up, and I stood in a defensive position ready to protect my family from this man who might possibly be preying upon obvious tourists like ourselves. As he approached closer, in fact, standing literally right next to us, he didn't say a word. And what he did next completely surprised us. Because what he did next was he held out his hand over us with the giant umbrella he was carrying to shield us from the rain while he was getting wet. I had severely misjudged this man's intentions. He couldn't speak English, and my Chinese is non-existent. So we simply nodded to each other with mutual understanding and thanks on my part. You know, we make decisions and assessments and assumptions about people every day. We make assumptions and decisions not only about people, but about circumstances in life, of events, and of places. And those assessments and decisions on our part determine many things in our life, determines our actions, sometimes even altering the course of our very lives. Some people are very confident in their decision-making ability. They are decisive because they are confident in themselves and in their ability to quickly assess a situation and make what they believe is the best decision. On the other end of the spectrum are those who are gripped with what we call decision paralysis. They are so afraid that they will make the wrong choices that they do not make any choice or decision at all. Whatever the case on this decision spectrum, we make assessments and decisions all the time about people, places, and events. And with that ability to make decisions comes an element of self-confidence that forms the foundation of our decisions. And below that self-confidence is the assumptions that we make. We think to ourselves, we already know about these types of people. We simply know how the situation will turn out. We've gone through this situation before, and so it will simply be the same. However, all of these decision-making opportunities, unfortunately, create in our lives a godless self-confidence that perpetuates itself through every aspect of our life. It is in this godless self-confidence where we take God out of the equation, we take God out of the decision-making process. It is because we make so many decisions every day and frequently 
that we simply do not have time for God. This is something that James warns us about, and he does so in his book. We continue our study in the book of James, chapter 4, verses 11 to 17 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 4, verses 11 to 17. We are in our series, Louder Than Words. And what we want to see in this series are actions that we demonstrate in our lives that speak louder than words to an unbelieving generation, to an unbelieving community of our genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Here in these eight verses, James will talk about two truths about life. And from these two truths, he will challenge us with two action points. So if you want to outline this talk in such manner, hopefully that will help you follow along as we take a look at James chapter 4, verses 11 to 17. How do we rid ourselves of godless self-confidence? James writes in verses 11 to 12, the first of these truths. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? The first thing that James wants us to realize is that we should not be too confident in how we assess and judge others to the extent that we begin to criticize them because we are unable to see into the hearts of men and women. Only God who knows the true nature of the hearts of men and women, have this privilege and prerogative. And that's why James notes in verse 11 that when we judge and when we criticize someone else, then we are taking what is God's responsibility and what is God's right and prerogative, and we give it to ourselves. And I hope that's something we wouldn't want to do. Take that which is God's and give it to us. You see, when we judge someone else, We are claiming that we are correct. We could never be wrong, especially when we pass judgment. But the truth that James wants to drive home, number one, is this. We have an inability to see into hearts. We possess an inability to see into the hearts of men and women. I hope that is the first thing you will realize Now, you may take this principle, and you may perhaps take it to what you think is your logical conclusion. Therefore, no one should judge me, and I will judge no one. No one has a right over me and can tell me what to do, and I won't tell anyone what to do. And yet, as a side note, while we are not to pass judgments on others in our personal capacity, unable to see hearts, which we are reminded of in verses 11 to 12, God has set up a system by which He appoints human authority to adjudicate decisions as a representative of Him. This is to prevent chaos in the world. This is to bring order in the world. And that's why we need to respect the rules and the laws in government, 
in churches, in any other system where God has instituted a program of justice. Yes, it is not perfect, but the giver of all law, the lawgiver, has chosen to delegate some of this authority to others. And our obedience to these systems, these systems of laws, are a way to honor God and His authority. To clarify, in the home, God has given parents the responsibility and the authority to adjudicate their children's behavior. In the church setting, God has given responsibility for the church spiritual leaders to judge conduct on its members in the church. In the world, God uses human governments to have judicial oversight over the actions of individuals. And again, while these programs may not necessarily be perfect, it is something that the ultimate lawgiver has given to those in authority. And our submission to that authority honors the Lord. For there to be an order in this world from a God of order, or else there would be utter chaos. Now let's move back to the main emphasis of James here in chapter 4. He's telling us that in our daily lives, we have a tendency and a propensity to judge others. And it is, it's, it's natural to us. We look at a person who comes into our circle of influence. We look at a person who comes into our small groups or our fellowship or even in the church. And we immediately judge them based on the way they look, based on the way they talk, based on the way they carry themselves based on the way they act and what they wear. In fact, in this age of social media, if we know their name and we're semi-interested in them, we begin to stalk them to get a picture to see who they really are. Even though we have all the capacity by which we believe we can make a fair assessment and judgment call on someone, oftentimes we're very wrong. For example, take my case. If you only know me through my social media accounts, you will not think me as a pastor. You will think of me as a food and travel blogger. I intentionally don't post Bible verses. I don't make social commentary online. And if you want to know the reason why, that's a different sermon for a different time. But if you look at me only through my social media presence, you'll come to the assumption that all I do is eat and travel. Now, if you don't know me from that context and you only know me on a weekend service, you'll get a very different perspective of Stephen, one who preaches and teaches the Word of God passionately without fear of being politically correct. And that's why many of you are scared of me, especially if you've never interacted with me in a personal capacity. And that's why many people who finally get to talk to me or get to know me are quite surprised to actually find me funny. Approachable, nice, not at all scary, which is not their first impression of me, which is always of me up in the pulpit rebuking them from the Word of God. It just simply shows you that we assess people based on how we see them. And we often treat it like a sport. But it is not a sport we are to play because it is something the Bible tells us God takes seriously. 
And God tells us to leave the judgments of others solely to Him because He alone can see into the hearts of men and women. We are limited in that capacity. Yes, I know that someone's attitudes and actions often show the reality of their hearts, but at the end of the day, we will often be mistaken. We cannot judge a motive. We don't know the full reason of why someone does what they do. Sometimes we look at a person who's poor and we think, oh, maybe they're just lazy. Or maybe they don't try. If they only tried, then they wouldn't be poor. What we don't know, perhaps, is they're burning the candle on both ends, trying to make ends meet, but they are supporting a family of eight We don't know those things. In his book, Confessions of a Pastor, Craig Rochelle tells this story. Craig Rochelle is the pastor uh, of a megachurch in Oklahoma City entitled Life Church. He said, one time I was praying during worship, and a few minutes before preaching, my eyes were closed, focusing on God. I felt that someone slipped a note into my hand. My eyes were closed, so I never saw who it was. But when I looked down, I saw that the note was marked personal. I thought to myself, someone was probably writing a nice note to encourage me before I spoke. A warm, loving feeling settled over me as I unfolded the paper to read what was written. A moment later when I read it, I lost that loving feeling. Evidently, the note was from a woman who had tried to see me on Friday, which was my day off. And she took offense at my absence and blasted me with hateful accusations. And this happened literally seconds before I was to stand to preach before tens of thousands. At that moment, I had a choice. I could internalize the offense and become demoralized and discouraged. Or I could ask myself, I wonder what that woman was experiencing that caused her to lash out. The Holy Spirit convicted me and I chose compassion over depression. And quickly, my heart hurt for her. I knew that such a disproportionate reaction must indicate deep pain. So I didn't take her note personally. He writes, consider the possibility that the jab may have come from an injured heart. And so I dismissed it and moved on. Because if you don't, you may become the very thing you despise. And Craig Rochelle writes these words as he ends the story. It is a fact that hurt people hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. My friends, we are simply unable to see into the hearts of men and women and to know the true motive and their true intent. This reality should cause us from becoming too self-confident in our own prideful assessments of others. Rid yourself of godless self-confidence because you and I cannot see into the hearts of men and women. The second realization is found in verses 13 to 14. Look with me. 
Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? Is it even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away? The second truth that James wants to convey is that he wants us to understand, number two, that we are unable to plan with absolute certainty for our future. We have an inability to plan with absolute certainty for our future. And this truth and fact should cause us to pause, to recognize our limitations, and then to rid ourselves of this godless self-confidence. In a hypothetical situation, James gives in verse 13 and 14, he tells of someone who perhaps is telling another friend that they will be traveling to a certain place, quite specific, spending a year's time there, the time frame also very specific, telling them that they would start a business and very assured that they will make a profit from this business. And James says, you can't do that because planning to the exact detail of what will happen is a futile attempt because at any moment your life can be taken away. For your life is like a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. We do not know what will happen tomorrow. Verse 14 is very clear. We may have great plans in our lives to retire somewhere, to emigrate somewhere, to live in a nice part of town. But you and I need to understand that while we may plan for those things, we may never make it if God calls us home. We don't know how many more years God will give us to serve Him in our lifetime. We can say, well, I'll retire at 65 and I'm going to live till 90 and enjoy the fruits of my labor. We do not know when God will call us home. You may even have great plans and grand plans of what your future will look like. But the Bible says, in my will, I may choose not to allow those dreams to come to fruition. In fact, you are so assured that you will be successful. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. Your life is like a vapor. You may never reach the point of that which you think is success. It is absolutely futile to plan with absolute certainty for your future because you don't even know what will happen in the next minute. And that truth should diminish confidence in yourself. Now, please, again, don't take this to a radical extension It doesn't mean we don't need to plan and make provisions for our future. The Bible clearly teaches that we need to do that. It doesn't mean we're not to set goals nor have any dreams. If it is the will of God, it will come true. It simply means we need to be reminded not to take God out of the equation in planning for the future. I know that many of you, especially good businessmen and women, have already planned for your future. You sat down with a financial advisor and you've planned how to manage your resources. 
you've planned out your family's life? Have you factored in the spiritual things as you are making an assessment of your future and planning for your future? As I was thinking about how we can do so, I thought to myself, if I were to sit down with someone, not as a financial planner, but perhaps as a life coach, and to share with them how as they're planning for the future, what are the things they need to consider from a spiritual perspective? I came up with five. The first spiritual factor that perhaps you should take into consideration as you plan for your future is to factor in the fact, number one, that Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming. Are you prepared for this? Are you prepared to meet your Savior face to face? So what will you tell Him when you meet Him face to face of how you have spent your life and spent your time? Have you factored that in in your life's plan? What will you tell Him about how you've lived your life with the years that God has given you? What advocacies are you going to share with Him that you will tell Him you spent your hard-earned time and resources in? Are they advocacies that He would be pleased with? Jesus is coming again. You will meet your Maker. We all will. How then will you assess and plan for your future? A second spiritual factor for what to consider when you're planning out your future is this truth. Number two, you can't take anything with you. So if you can't take anything with you, how much accumulation of wealth is really enough? If you're 80 years old and you're planning for your future and you're still not content with what God has given you, You've got to ask yourself the question, if I can't take anything with me, why am I still striving so hard to accumulate earthly wealth? In fact, that can happen at any age. If you and I can't take anything with us when we leave this earth, how does that factor in to our life goals and life plans? And if we can't take it with us, then we have to give it away, but to whom are we giving it out to? Some of you, because you love your kids and grandkids and you're soon to come, although you'll probably never see them great-grandkids, you want to prepare for their security. Well, you know what? Here's the truth. If you prepare for their security financially perfectly and completely, you know what you're going to have? Really lazy kids. Really lazy grandkids. That's the truth. So if you can't take anything with you and you give it away, who are you going to give it to? Are you going to give it to those who will simply spend away your hard-earned money? And I've had many parents complain to me about this. I give them money, and all they do is go on vacation. They don't even take me. They don't know the value of money. I said, who gave it to them? I did. Did you give them any stipulations? No, but they should have known better. They should have been like me to work hard and save. I'm sorry, older generation. The new generation doesn't think like that. They think, free money! I'm going to enjoy life. I see how hard you've worked. You haven't enjoyed life. You want to start enjoying life when you can't walk anymore. There's truth in that. So guess what? If you can't take anything with you and you're planning for your financial future, give it away, but you better assess who you're giving it to and for what work. 
In view of all these, what are you living your life for? Here's a third truth that I would would share with one who was planning for their spiritual future. I would tell them, here's a third factor you may want to consider as you're planning your future. Understand that leaving a spiritual legacy is more important than leaving your own legacy. Leaving a spiritual legacy is more important than leaving your own legacy. So as you prepare and plan for your future, what do you want to see in the lives of the next generation with which you have an influence over? Whether it's your own children, nieces or nephews, or even people you mentor. What is it that you want to see in their lives? Even in your own life, what do you want people to say about you when this life is over? What is the reputation you want them to have about you? Can they say of your life that here is a man, here is a woman, whose actions spoke louder than words, testifying to a life in Jesus Christ? Here is a man who has not left much, but he has left a spiritual legacy for us to emulate. This is not only for pastors, this is for all of us. If it is your goal in life that there is a building named after you, you will live for that goal. You will purpose your life for that goal. But here's the truth of the fact. Buildings get destroyed. The Bible is very clear. People will forget. How many buildings do you see in Metro Manila? Their names are there, but you don't know who they are. You don't know what they've contributed but their names are there. But spiritual legacies last forever. I'm reminded of a story of the famous conqueror of the ancient world, the great Alexander. One day he came across a philosopher, Diogenes. And the philosopher Diogenes was staring attentively at a heap of bones. What are you looking at, Diogenes? Alexander asked. The philosopher responded, sir, something that I cannot find. And what might that be that you are looking for that you cannot find? The philosopher, Diogenes, replied to Alexander the Great, sir, I cannot find in this pile of bone the difference between your father's bones and those of his slaves. There is no difference. When the life that you live is over and you're put six foot down, truth be told, it is the spiritual legacy that lives on. So as you're planning for your future, have you ever considered that as a part of how you're going to live your life? Here's a fourth factor for how you can plan for your future where God is involved. Plan your future knowing that there are eternal rewards at stake. We forget that. If eternal rewards which have been promised in the scriptures are true, then how many of us are living our lives for those eternal rewards versus the temporary rewards most of us are trying to attain?
when I see my Savior, I'm thinking to myself, will He give me rewards in return? Or will I see Him face to face and leave empty-handed? Will I live with regret knowing that I should have done what I know I should have done, but I didn't? Because that will reverberate throughout all eternity. Should I have shared the gospel to my friend? Should I have told my friend about Jesus Christ instead of trying to always be nice and perhaps thinking I'll lose that friendship if they think all I do is talk about Jesus? Or will I live for the eternal reward of knowing that there will be someone in heaven who knew Christ because of me? Because so many people here are living for the acceptance of the world. And so we're all on a journey to collect as many friends as we can, right? That's the truth. But if you're looking from the perspective of the eternal, then it is our goal to also collect friends, yes. But also to collect friends, more importantly, friends that we will know in heaven. Collecting friends here, they come and go. The collection of friends of people we will know because they trusted Christ in heaven, should be part of your future plans. The fifth factor that I could think of this week uh, that helps us plan for our future that you should consider is the factor of, am I becoming more like Christ? If one day my life will be glorified, as the book of Romans tells us, justification, sanctification, glorification... And my life is to be glorified. I'm on a path and trajectory towards becoming more like Him. So are my future plans in alignment with that? Am I becoming more like Him? Am I spending my resources and my time and self-development to make sure that I reflect Him and reflect Him well in this lifetime? Because how... We plan for a future based on our goals. If there is a spiritual component in it, it changes our perspective and it changes our attitudes and how we live this life. After these two truths, James in verses 15 to 17 will give two action points. Look with me. The first action point is found in verses 15. Verse 15. He writes, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. In light of the realization that I cannot look into the hearts of men and women, and that I cannot see into the future, then I should trust God enough to submit to His will. You see, the opposite of godless self-confidence is that I cultivate an attitude and corresponding action that displays that whatever God desires of my life, I will submit to His will. So here's the first action point. Trusting God enough to submit to His will. Trusting God enough to submit to His will. Again, some may take this to a fatalistic idea where, okay, come what may. Whatever happens to me, happens to me. But that's not the point. Because that will lead to depression. But this is an attitude that recognizes and realizes the power of God who is able to see into the hearts of man and who knows and controls the future, and we acknowledge, Lord, if you can do all of those things, then how you choose to deal with someone is within your prerogative. 
and how you choose to deal with my future is your prerogative. I trust you enough to submit to your will. I'll be honest, there's an individual who I pray for almost weekly that God would deal in a rather harsh way. I'm following the biblical example of a modern-day imprecatory prayer, if you're familiar with imprecatory prayers, you read them all throughout the Bible, uh, where especially in the Old Testament, a lot of the psalmists are crying out, Lord, when will you rain destruction upon these people? I pray the same thing about this man. But it doesn't seem that God is doing anything about it. Why not, God? Why? Even in these verses, it is a reminder to me that I do not know what God knows. I do not control the future as He does. So I have to trust God enough to humbly submit to His will in these matters. For me, it's tough to swallow. It's hard to accept. But you know what, my friends? It's how we display to the world that we really do trust in this person we call our Lord. You see, for the world, they do not understand that we would submit to the will of a God who doesn't conform His will to ours. So the expectation is, You worship your God. What has He done for you? And we ask ourselves this question. Yeah, you know, right? That's right. What has He done for us? And so we have the expectation that God is like a genie. That He's a good genie. That if we ask Him to do something, He'll do it. And prayer is the lamp that we rob. And so we pray and the genie appears and we say, Lord, this is what you need to do. And if you don't do it, this is a useless lamp. This is a useless genie. And the world would not fault you if you stop trusting in a God who does not do as you have instructed Him. How dare we treat God like that? but yet we do. The world will be impressed. In fact, they will be drawn to how we as believers in Jesus Christ can trust in a God who does not often accede to our will and doesn't give us what we always want because for sure you've told all your friends what you want and your heart's desire and He still doesn't give it to us And yet, if you can still trust Him and trust His sovereign will enough to submit to whatever He desires of your life, the world will be drawn. And it will speak louder than words, more than simply the words that come out of your mouth that say, well, I trust God. You show it through action, even when it does not match with your will. I like what Corey Ten Boom says, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to an all-knowing God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future 
to an all-knowing God. And this was a woman whose entire family was imprisoned by the Nazis, killed in the concentration camp. She's the only one to survive. And for her to be able to say, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to an all-knowing God puts our perspective where it needs to be. In 1996, Christian singer and songwriter Cindy Morgan arrived for a series of concerts in Los Angeles. As she unpacked her clothes for that evening's concert, she discovered that her dress was terribly wrinkled. It would be an embarrassment if she wore a wrinkled dress for that evening's concert. And so an assistant, a woman, uh, assigned to assist Cindy Morgan, uh, set out to find an iron for her dress. Well, she was sent to a church staff member's house with a key and an instruction as to where she could find the iron and the ironing board. To her horror, as she entered the house, she found the teenage daughter of the one who owned this house at home with a loaded gun pointed to her head. She was about to commit suicide when the woman arrived. Through thick, quick thinking, a cool head, and the presence of God, this assistant was able to talk the troubled teen into dropping the gun and returning with her for help. This story was told to Cindy, and in response to God's miraculous intervention, Cindy Morgan said, to rescue a life, God wrinkled the dress. To rescue a life, God wrinkled a dress. I know most of us, if I was in that situation, I'd be so mad that my clothes were wrinkled. Oh, the inconvenience of having this happen to me. God, why? But we do not know as God knows. We do not see as God sees to rescue a life, he may have wrinkled your clothes. Do we trust God enough to submit to him? Because the world is watching. The second action point is found in verses 16 and 17. Look with me. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such evil as boasting. The attitude of godless self-confidence lends itself to boasting because there's no one else to ascribe glory to. However, this attitude is rebuked by James. He calls it evil. And so many of us, especially in our Asian context where we have immigrated from, let's say, China and have built and established a company or a business, there are so many who, who think and say, this is what I built with my own two hands. I came all the way, impoverished from China, landing in a country where I had nothing. And from that nothing, I toiled hard from the sweat of my brows, and I've worked and worked, and look what I have now. Glory be to me. They may not say that last line, but they surely think it. But you know what? This attitude is not only isolated for businessmen, 
It can apply to pastors, spiritual leaders who look at their church and say, look at all of what has happened under my leadership. Look how this has grown because of me. Oh, Satan loves to put those thoughts in our minds and let us bask, even for a few moments, self-glorification. But the Bible tells us all such boasting is evil. It takes credit which belongs only to God. And God humbles the proud because He does not share His glory with another. When we boast and no longer recognize God enough to acknowledge His work, it is a slippery slope down pride and boasting. It is a slippery slope when we do not recognize the work of God in our lives, in our companies, in the provision of our foods every day, in our families, in everything He has a part in it. But we often forget. What you need to understand as an action point number two is this. We need to recognize God enough to acknowledge His work in our life. Recognize God enough to acknowledge His work in our life. It's getting harder and harder in this generation, young and old. Our generation, with technology giving us information lightning fast, we have a tendency to forget. We have very short memories because we're suffering from information overload. And unless stories are told over and over and over again, then we forget. That's why even in the Old Testament, when God instructed the leaders of the Israelites, He told them, tell the stories of my faithfulness and my provisions. Tell them to your children and your grandchildren and to the generations to come. Tell them these stories over and over and over again because it is the tendency of the human mind to take God and put Him aside and no longer recognize His handiwork in what you and I have. Do the stories of your accomplishments have anything in it about God? Is He a part of your success story? Is God in the story of your athletic accomplishments? Is He in the story of your academic achievements? More than the perfunctory, praise be to God, or thank God, and then the focus suddenly shifts to you. Is He an integral part of your life story? Because if He is not, and you do not recognize God enough to acknowledge His work, it is a slippery slope towards forgetting Him completely. I know this may not resonate with many of you, but I love American football. Played it. And I watched the playoff games uh, last weekend. And the playoff game where the Minnesota Vikings won was especially exciting. Uh, The Vikings won on the last second of the game. Those are always exciting. In the last second of the game, the quarterback, Case Keenum, threw a 60-yard throw. And to put it in kind of your basketball context, that's throwing it from one end of the court to the other and that ball going through the net. He threw it to his wide receiver. It was a touchdown. It was pandemonium. 
they won in the last second. Players were jovial, rejuvenating, congratulating each other. National media came onto the field and they began to interview the star player, the savior of the game, quarterback Case Keenum. And the national reporter asked Case, this has to be the most memorable moment of your life. And without missing a beat, here's a man where the adrenaline is flowing. He's barely catching his breath. You can watch it on YouTube. He can barely speak. He corrected him. He said, no, maybe the third most memorable moment of my life. He said, the first was when I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. The second was when I married my wife. The third, perhaps, is this moment. You know the heart of this man because he didn't have time to think about it. How do I know? Most players watching the NBA, they'll think about it. Oh, praise God. But they always forget the wife. The wife is never. So I know this guy was legit. You thank God and then the accomplishment. For him, for Case, number one was God. The day he accepted Christ into his life, the second was when he married his wife. Boy, he earned some brownie points there. And the third maybe was that moment. If in your life you can, without missing a beat, tell of how God is a part of your life, interwoven. He's not a perfunctory statement. He's not the obligatory, thank God. Or praise God. He is integral in your success story about your life. Then you're doing good. Because you who boast in your arrogance, the Bible says, all such boasting is evil. And he concludes in verse 17. Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. The concluding admonition is to say, that you know what you need to do. Just do it. If you boast and don't trust God enough to submit to His will, then you are sinning. If you boast and do not trust God for His handiwork in your life and acknowledge Him, then you are sinning. It will lead all of us towards the path of godless self-confidence. I end with this. Pastor Frank Damaso talks about four kinds of confidence and he defines them. He says we can either have self-confidence, believing we are capable of doing what we see to do and desire to do. We can have overconfidence, believing we are capable of doing what we see and what we are challenged to do when in fact we are not. This is presumptuousness, believing we would succeed without failure. Thirdly, we can have people Confidence, believing in others that they will do what they have promised and they have all the resources needed to fulfill what they say. This may or may not be reality. And that's mostly where our confidence comes from. Self-confidence, overconfidence, and people confidence. But there's a fourth one. That's God confidence. Believing in the greatness of God, His strength, His integrity, His sovereign power to do what needs to be done. We can have full, complete confidence in God. Confidence in a God who empowers us, engages us, strengthens us. 
It is this confidence in God that makes it possible to achieve and accomplish anything and everything God sets before us. So my friends, what will it be? God the self-confidence? Overconfidence? People confidence? Or God confidence? Let your actions speak louder than words to show the world that you indeed trust this God you say you truly trust with your entire life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding me when I've become too self-confident that I am so limited compared to you. I don't know the hearts of men and women. I do not see the future. I can't even see a minute past this moment. Who am I to tell you what to do? Help all of us in this body this morning to trust you enough to submit to your will even if it doesn't correspond with our desire. And help us when we tell the stories of our life. Always ensure and make sure that you are interwoven into it. Because apart from you, we can do nothing. For these truths and these actions, may the Holy Spirit challenge us to live forth lives louder than word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.